Amen. Thank you, folks. Psalm chapter 133. If you find your Bible, there's one in front of you in the back of the pew. Psalm chapter 133. We're going to get back to our uh, study on the church. And boy, I, uh, it's been a great study. I'm looking forward to getting back. It's been a few weeks since we've been in it. But we're going to look in uh, Psalm 133 here in a moment. We're going to read the entire chapter. Don't worry, it's only three verses, okay? And uh, so Psalm 133 is where we'll be. It's part seven of our study, and uh, we'll see that in a moment uh, here. But boy, what a great study it's been. I tell you, we've uh, operated on the premise from God's Word that it is God's plan for every believer to be part of His church, that is the local church, the manifestation of God's family. And so we've explained and we've looked in Scriptures to see what does that, uh, what is that described as? What does it look like? What does God God says it ought to be and the reasons for you and I being a part of it. And so I trust today, if you're not a part of a local church, boy, we sure would love to have you at Fostoria Baptist Church. And if the Lord leads that way, and uh, because God has a special plan for His church, and He has a special plan for you. Psalm chapter 133, we're going to base it on this. You remember the last two items, it's been a few weeks, the last two observations that we uh, made, it was from back in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and it was this statement here, number seven, diversity among the members does not suggest inferiority, but rather enables the body to be multifaceted, enhanced, and successful in fulfilling the wishes of its head, which is Jesus Christ. So our diversity allows us to do that much more for Christ. Then we saw this statement, every member of the body is both needed and to be cared for by the other members. Verse 12, I believe it is, verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 12 told us that we're supposed to, uh, we have unity. There's one body, we care for one another. There's mutual dependence and care. Now David says an interesting thing because really we were talking about unity. David says a very interesting thing here in Psalm chapter 133 and he gives just a beautiful imagery of what unity is like. Notice it, Psalm 133, verse number one. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. He says it's good, it's pleasant. Then verse two, notice this description. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. That's not Pastor Robertson, okay? And uh, so even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Now, look at it. He's describing a beautiful picture of unity among the brethren. It's good, it's pleasant, and then he gives us this interesting picture. He describes for us that uh, unity among the brethren is like um, a fragrant oil that was used to consecrate, to dedicate, to anoint Aaron the priest. Uh, an oil that was often, in fact, in Deuteronomy, I think it's described, they would add spices and fragrant herbs to it to, to make it smell beautiful and wondrous, a wondrous uh, fragrance. You, you can think of a, uh, a room freshener now today or something like that, or maybe you have something hanging from your, your rear view mirror in your car to, to, to make it smell better. And the idea was in this oil, it smelled just beautiful. It was very agreeable, the odor would have been. And so he takes the oil and they put it on top of Aaron and, and and that oil literally would, uh, they used it quite profusely. When it says it went, went down to his beard, did you notice the description? Even to the bottom of his garments. So it was a beautiful presentation. He, 
uh, it, it was a wondrous day, not only in the coronation of Aaron, but it would also have been used during other joyous and solemn celebrations uh, there. And as they poured out the oil, as was the custom in ancient East, they would pour it out and that oil would just really cover him, every limb. It would just be abundant. And my friend, you know what the psalmist is describing? That unity is very beautiful and tremendous blessing in its abundance like that oil covering Aaron. Just a... Man, it is so good, it is so pleasant for there to be unity. Think of it this way. If this morning I, I invited our, our two and three-year-olds to come up here and, on, on this platform, and we kind of got them all here, and, and I produced a ball, and I said, okay, I want you guys just to play together here. Have a ball, go at it. What would we get? Oh, I have a three-year-old. I'll tell you what we get. Chaos. We'll get everything and everything, fighting over the ball. And I mean, they, boy, that, it would be rather entertaining for us till somebody got hurt, right? It's all fun and games till someone gets hurt. And then, so here they are. You throw, what, what do they need? Well, here's what they need. Understand, what they need is for somebody to come along and to give them unity and to equip them and teach them how to maintain it. In other words, we have wonderful teachers here at Fostoria Baptist Church. We, many, of our, many of you taught in Sunday school and do a wonderful job. I'm thankful for our Sunday school teachers. We have some in nursery now, some in junior church doing a wonderful job. What do they need? They need someone to come along them and say, okay, all right, you sit here, you sit here, and, and you sit there. Now, we're going to take the ball, and you're going to throw it gently. We're going to throw it one to another. And we're going to make sure we throw it to each person so everybody gets a turn. And you and I have done that. I've worked with twos and three-year-old. Uh, feel sorry for them, but I have. And, uh, and, and you teach them. That just toss it. Oh. And can I tell you what that brings? You, you see them, and boy, they start smiling because they catch the ball, and they throw the ball. And, and uh, his turn, his turn, and they, they throw him the ball. And all of a sudden, guess what? Boy, things have changed completely. Not because they produced the unity on their own. They couldn't have done that. That would have been chaos. But no, someone came along and provided and promoted and produced unity. Now their job is to maintain it. All right, keep, keep sharing the ball. Make sure you keep passing the ball and give it to, to one another. You see, already in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we've, we've looked and caught a glimpse that unity in the church and among the body is very important. But the Bible has a whole lot more to say about unity in the church. And this illustration, we'll see, it plays well into what the Scriptures describe should be our unity here. Let me ask you this. Have you ever prayed for unity for God's church? It could be, let's explain it a little bit, it could be the universal church and all the believers around the world, or more specifically, and I think more applicable or applicable, that you have prayed for unity in this local church, the local manifestation of God's church. Have you done that? You say, yeah, I have, Pastor. I, I prayed for Fostoria Baptist Church that we would have unity. I, I, I prayed that even among believers, maybe not the same church, but all of God's church, that, that there would be unity. I prayed for it. Well, that's good. I, I have certainly prayed along those lines, and I, from this pulpit, have encouraged prayer for unity likewise. 
But I, I think, however, we need to be careful not to let that prayer cause us to think unbiblically about unity within the church, within the body of Christ. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, let me explain. Let, let me share with you what God's Word says about unity, and I think it may challenge our thinking about unity. Very important. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at the New Testament as God has used Paul to instruct you and I, as we've already seen in Corinthians, and now we turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Man, I love Ephesians. It is a tremendous book. It is a, it is a beautiful book, and just what it presents of the truth of God's Word. What we'll see here, and I'll go ahead and give you the outline. This is not that so some of you can go to sleep. It's just so you know where we're going, okay? First of all, number one, we're going to see the command concerning unity in the church. A command concerning unity in the church. Then we're going to see the cause of unity or what creates unity in the church. And then uh, both today and next Sunday, we're going to see some common myths about unity in the church. So we're going to see uh, these three things borne out in the book of Ephesians. Now, let's understand the book of Ephesians real quick. The first few chapters, we have an understanding of salvation. In fact, it it explains what salvation is, what salvation gives us, what it provides us, and how a Gentile and a Jew can come to trust Christ, and the riches. In fact, chapter 3 describes the riches found in Christ. And aren't you thankful today that if you are a believer, you've trusted in Christ, you are rich today. There are riches in Christ and salvation. So that's what the first few chapters describe. Then as we get into chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul introduces the thought that the church is now important, vital, God's gift to every believer to help us, uh, to equip us to walk the new life we have in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants us to do. He says, okay, now you've been saved. Now I've given you the church, and it is to equip you and help you to walk and live as you ought to do. Now we come to to chapter 4. We'll see this, this call of discipleship. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation, the calling wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing, here's one of these one-anothers we've talked about, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Jump down to verse 11. He's describing the church here. And he says, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for what? The perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of who? The body of Christ. Notice it. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into Him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Now love this verse. We don't have time to develop it this morning. We will in our study. Notice this verse. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of who? The body 
unto the edifying of itself in love. Now, that is a fantastic verse. And I'll tell you, my friend, it deals with the church. And we'll get into it. It's a great one to memorize and meditate on. Now, look at verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. In the vanity of their mind, he goes on. So we see it. What, what is he saying? Okay, you're saved. Here's the calling place upon your life. The church is given to you where that can then be equipped and encouraged and edified and built up in you to walk like Christ. And then he says, okay, here's how you walk. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. He continues the same thought. Be therefore followers of God as dear children and walk in love. And it continues through the entire chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. So there's instructions given for how to live this new life. And it is to be incubated in the church. It is the place where you come and you say, okay, we're going to be unified, brought together as the family of God to be equipped, encouraged, edified, and to be built up in Christ. Forgive my excitement this morning, but I'll tell you, my friend, I sure am glad that God has thought of everything. That he has planned our lives out for us spiritually so that you and I could come to Jesus Christ through faith and trust in him. And then, because of that, we join the family of God. We're part of the family. We join the local church. And then God has saw fit to equip us, to encourage us, to edify us, to build us up. I know I'm a pastor, but my friend, any Christian, whether as a pastor or not, I cannot convince you enough. You could not see within me a passion enough of how important the local church is. Part of God's perfect plan. But this morning, this morning, we want to turn our, our, our attention back to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 4. Concerning this command about unity. Did you catch it in verse 3? He said this, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's your command of unity. But before we break that down for further understanding, it brings up immediately a common myth. And I want you to get this this morning. Because it is somewhat prevalent in our thinking at times about unity in the church. We need to dispel it this morning uh, as we consider how unity is achieved within the local church. These myths, as we look at them, these myths, they, they can often um, cause us to word our prayer differently when we come to understand that they are in true, indeed a myth. When we come to understand the truth of God's Word, they might cause us to change our, our thinking and even our prayers and our actions. They might cause us to think differently about unity within the church and see, to see how it's accomplished here. For instance, let me give you just an example. You certainly know it well. Most of us would understand and know that there was a time that before the Americas, the continents were discovered, that many learned men thought that the earth was flat. In fact, because they thought it was flat, their thinking was, if you sailed far enough, you'd fall off. Now, I don't know what you fall into. I don't know. That would have been something to find out, you know, in their minds. So where do you fall? Well, you just keep falling. I don't know. You fall into space. I, they literally thought, oh, it's flat. And if you questioned the idea that it was flat, you were ridiculed. You were laughed at. In fact, in some places, you were persecuted. Because you said, no, 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 the world isn't flat, it's round. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. But then what happened? Well, somebody discovered. Somebody said, no, 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 it is round. In fact, I'm going to prove it. I'm going to set out the cell, and they did. And, and what happens? Oh, they found out the world is round. So what did it do? It changed a whole lot of things. 
Thinking and actions. What happened? Well, people and nations all around the world started sending people sailing near and far. They discovered new lands. They discovered new riches. They even sailed around the world, the circumference of the world. Things changed tremendously. Why? Because a myth was put to bed. We would put it this way. Once the myth was dispelled, it changed people's thinking and doing. So this morning, my desire is to put to bed a myth concerning the unity in the church. Now, here's what's important. You know that the church honestly exists in the eyes of God to put to bed many myths. Wrong teaching. Wrong philosophies. Wrong thinking. In fact, you know what the Bible calls the church? The pillar of truth. The church exists to promulgate and uh, propagate, excuse me, and, and push and teach the truth. So Fostoria Baptist Church's goal and desire is to teach and preach the truth. And part of that truth is to do what? Expose myths where they're wrong. Now I want to say something this morning for some. You say, well, Pastor Henry, if the church is here as the pillar of truth, if it exists to, to, to push and teach truth, what would you say is the greatest truth? Friend, I'll tell you, here's the greatest truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the greatest truth. It is called the gospel. What does gospel mean? It is the good news. Friend, you're here today. Can I tell you the greatest truth you could understand today is simply this. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For all have sinned. We're all sinners. We deserve hell. We don't deserve heaven. In fact, the Bible says that we have come short of the glory of God. Literally, we have come short of heaven on our own. And yet the Bible says this, though all have sinned, that we have come short of that glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. The Bible says the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the greatest truth, oh, yeah, you and I are sinners. We deserve hell. Uh, those wages of sin, that's death. It cost us. But the great news is, is that God did send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you and for me. And that through simple faith and trust in him today, that you can become a child of God. You can become a part of the family of God. I never want for any person to leave Fostoria Baptist Church without hearing the greatest truth ever given. That Jesus Christ died for you. And yet at the same time as we are here to promote and push and to teach the greatest truth, we're also here and called to put to bed common myths about different things. And one of them is unity in the church. That affects, it will affect our thinking and our doing. Look again to verse 3. Did you catch the myth-busting truth here? It's an implication that Paul gives us. It's one that's often missed. It's understood. You see, those members in that church were diverse like we were. 
In that church, uh, some of them were converted Jews from Judaism. Others were, were just secular Gentiles who didn't know anything. Many of them probably didn't know anything about religion. Or if they did know something about religion, it was false religion. And so here's a church diverse, made up of all different kinds of people. And so you can imagine Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Greek, and they're all mixed together in this church. And boy, we can think of it in our own terms, you know, uh, a, a mixture, a uh, a grouping together. I mean, uh, you know, modern day terminology, it might be northerners and southerners. It might be Spartan fans and Wolverine fans. All mixed in the same church, unified and, I mean, just in different ways. Here they were. So what do we derive from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3? What do we come to understand? This, get it, don't miss it. Nowhere does Paul ever tell believers to produce unity. Nowhere we say, well, we've just got to work hard and, and get unity. We've just got to do something to produce it. Paul never says that. The Scriptures don't say it. In fact, there's two reasons why he doesn't say it. Number one is this. They already possess unity. And then number two, they, can't ha- they don't have the power to produce it. Notice, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity. He doesn't say produce it. He doesn't say your responsibility as a church member, my responsibility as a pastor is to produce unity. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible does teach us to keep the unity that God gives. See, I could tell you, my friend, I could stand here and we have the two and three-year-olds sitting here and I could stand, they're hitting each other, they're crawling all over each other. One of the boys decides to play dodgeball with the ball and he's knocking everybody else down. I could stand over here and say, hey, 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 you guys, hey, you guys need unity. A lot of good that will do. I could yell and scream to them. No, you know what they need? They need somebody step in the middle. Okay, okay, you sit down there. Give me the ball. You sit down there. You sit down here. Okay, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to pass it. Someone needs to come along and give them unity. See, one of the greatest truths that you and I as a member of a local church can understand, you and I cannot produce unity. But we sure can keep it. We sure can maintain it. We think of that, the reality in this simple truth, that you and I are never called upon to create or manufacture unity. This pastor is not called upon by God to form or create a form of unity, especially, as some churches try to do, unity at all costs. No, unity exists because the church exists. Unity is present. If you have a church, you have unity. We, as humans, are incapable, you and me, of producing and creating unity. Well, some might say, well, that's saddening. That's discouraging. Well, frankly, it's quite the opposite. Because here's the fact. If you and I try to create unity, if we try to produce unity, the fact is that unity would be faulty, it would be weak, and it would be fragile. It would easily fall apart. We hear much in the news today, especially like North Korea and South Korea, countries making peace with one another. What happens with that? Well, one person fires a missile, what happens? Peace just falls apart. See, if you and I were the ones who had to produce unity, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty fallible. If we had to produce unity, unity wouldn't last long. Because any unity and peace that we would create, that we would manufacture, would be highly fragile i'm thankful 
In fact, praise God that you and I don't have to produce unity that God already has. We'll see how He has in these passages, these verses to follow. But you and I are called upon to keep and to maintain the, the unity. See, eventually we'll ask, answer the question, well, what causes? Where does that unity come from? How did God create it in the church? Then, how do I maintain it? But I think there's also a second myth, a common myth that needs to be exposed. Here it is. Notice it. Number two, uh, excuse me, that was the first one. As members, believers are called upon to maintain, not create the unity that is already present. As believers... We as members are called upon to maintain, not create the unity. Then number two, here's the second myth. Notice it. Every church is susceptible to friction and conflict among its members. Every church is susceptible. In other words, there's potential for disunity. See, it's interesting as we read the Scriptures, even in this passage, you know what Paul says? He acknowledges the existence and reality of conflict and friction among Christians in churches. That there is a great potential for conflict and friction in any church and in every church. In 1 Corinthians 12, you remember what it said? It said, care for one another. Why? So there wouldn't be any schisms in the body. You know what that is essentially saying? Maintain the unity that I have put there, God says. You work at maintaining it, member. You assume the responsibility for keeping the unity going. Have you ever left your children somewhere, maybe at a babysitter? Uh, maybe you left them at a parent's or a family says, and said, you said this, hey, children, listen up. Okay, you're living here. Now, when I'm gone, while I'm gone, I want you to get along. I want you, no fighting, no, 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 no getting onto each other and into each other's business. Get along with one another. Play together nicely. What are you telling them? This is what you're saying to them. Keep the unity. Maintain the unity. Well, what unity are we talking about? What's well, unity that you've already established? What's it based upon? Well, to put it simply, you brought them into the same family. You made them brothers and sisters. I, I, I you know, jokingly will tell my sons, you know, I gave you life and I can take it from you. Jokingly, of course. Yeah. And then, you know, then one of them has learned, no, God gave me life. Well, that's true, but we're not going to, okay. Don't get in a theological discussion right now. <laughs> this is a discipline issue. But think about it, okay? Who brought unity into your family? Well, honestly, you did. You made them brother and sister or brothers or sisters. And so there is the unity. And so when you say, okay, you get along. I, I want you to behave. I, I don't want any fighting. You're saying, okay, I've given you unity. I've established unity. And you have something between you that no one else does. Because you're brothers and you're sisters. You're part of this family. It's only what a family can share. And they're connected in a way that gives them unity, whether they acknowledge it or not. H- have you ever said something like this? Hey, come on, come on. You guys are brothers and sisters. Start acting like it. Hey, come on now. Hey, we're family here. Start acting like it. To which some would say, well, they're fighting and they're arguing, so I guess they're acting like a family. Now, can I tell you something? That is an unbiblical view of what family is. And the moment we start misunderstanding, in fact, it is a view of family that sin in this world has corrupted. Because I'll tell you, my friend, within your family, there ought to be unity and there ought to be peace. And so 
when we have a misunderstanding of what family is, guess what? Then we talk about the family of God, and we think it ought to look like our human sin-corrupted families. That's not what God intended. God sometimes, I guess, would say from heaven, He looks at church and says, Hey, 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 your family! Start acting like it. I've made you family. Start acting like it. Be unified. Sometimes we take our misunderstanding, our worldly view of what a family is, and superimpose it. I'll tell you this morning, hey friend, your family ought not to be known for fighting, conflict, for friction. Your family ought to be a reflection of even the family of God if you're a believer. Unity, peace, getting along, working things out. See, the myth that churches aren't susceptible to friction and conflict, though, causes us to again focus on this command, verse 3. He says what? Endeavor to keep the peace. You know what the Greek word there means? It means with haste, with diligence, with energy, earnestly. In fact, we would put it this way. The command concerning the unity church is this. uh, Earnestly, 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 diligently maintain unity. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying there's forces at work that are trying to erode the unity within the family. There's things working against unity taking place. That's why all through the Scriptures, the Bible says, hey, maintain the unity. Keep the unity. Work at loving one another. Why? Because God has already established the unity. It's our responsibility to maintain it, to keep it. We can't produce it. Praise be to God, He has produced it. But now my job as a follower, a disciple, a member of a local church is to maintain the unity, to keep it. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. And yet, when there's here within the family, there is potential for conflict and friction. Have you ever participated in a family, extended family get-together, a holiday event, and everything starts out pretty good, but then somebody brings up something from the past. Somebody says something that offends somebody else, and all of a sudden, World War III erupts in what was supposed to be a great, happy family get-together. You know, it'd be funny if it didn't hit so close to home for many. A family celebration, a get-together erupts. Why? Because something is said. Conflict or friction happens and occurs. There's yelling, there's fighting. Some just run away. And the unity that was once fragilely present is irrevocably shattered. And so it can happen in a church. In fact, there's little doubt There's little doubt that conflict amongst Christians is one of the most destructive forces within the church. Just as it will do at a family get-together and with a human family, the fact is this, conflict and friction destroys lives, it destroys churches, and it destroys the testimony of the gospel. There's many voices today calling for unity in the church. Yea, local churches and universal church all at the same time. Why? Because disunity instead of unity, what does it do? It causes a church to be weak, anemic, 
It affects his testimony and often causes a church in God's word, God himself, to be the butt of the joke in a community, a laughingstock. The gospel outreach of a local church is hindered and haltered by the disunity within a church. See, when there's conflict and friction within a local church, it it takes away from the mission statement that we've been given. So instead of focusing on the lost and their need of the Savior, and in fact, a lost and dying world, what happens? The fixation, the focus is turned upon a church that is broken, anemic, and weak, and needs fixing. You know what Jesus Christ said? This is quite interesting. He prayed to God the Father. He said, listen, Father, give them unity, and as they have unity, it's going to produce something. This is what he said in John chapter 7, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee that they also may be one in us, unified. Why? That the world may, what's the next word? Believe. That the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So our unity has a huge effect on what? The gospel of Jesus Christ being shared. That they would believe. Hence, obviously, disunity would have the adverse effect. So why does Paul say, hey, endeavoring to keep the unity of uh, earnestly, diligently maintain unity within the church? Why? Because he knows our testimony in the community as believers, as a local church, is hugely, greatly affected if we don't have unity. See, okay, pastor, this is what we should do then. We should have a church where we're all alike, where we all like the same things, where we all have the same desires, where we all, you know, we're all cookie cutters and we're all brought into conformity one for another. No, God designed the church to be a diverse place. And here's the beauty of God's design. He takes a place where is literally a soil Fertile, fertile, excuse me, for conflict and friction. And he takes such a place and he says, listen, that's exactly where I'm going to put unity. Think of it in these terms. Understand what he's saying. This endeavoring to keep unity is in spite of differences which naturally occur within this assembly, within the church. Do you realize that a church can be one of the most gloriously diverse and different groups found in the world? It's one of the great delightful truths of the church. It brings many different people from many different backgrounds together. Think about it, will you? Listen listen carefully. See if this doesn't describe us well. And let's get a picture of God's diverse church. Do you realize that right here in Fostoria Baptist Church, in our membership, we have people who love winter. And we have people who hate it. In this membership, you realize that we have people who love coffee and those who can't stand it? Some of us who think it's like drinking dirt. Not to speak personally, but anyway. We're diverse. Hey, you realize in this assembly, we have those that love green tractors and those who wouldn't take one for free? That's us. That's a, that's a church. In this church, this membership, do you realize we have those who will only drive a Chevy and those who will only drive a Ford. We even have one farmer who drives a Subaru. 
I'm not going to mention names because Dell Childs would not like me to mention his name. Okay, but we are diverse, even by what we drive, our allegiances. Can I tell you, there's some of us here, if you need to go to a hospital, you'll choose to go to Lapeer Hospital. There's others who have told me, I'd never send my dog to Lapeer Hospital. Somebody told me that. Don't tell Rich and Angie, amen? Okay. There are those here who barely make $20,000 a year. There are some here who make over $100,000 a year. There are some here who only or would prefer to eat always meat, bread, and potatoes. There's some here. There's some here who don't want to touch meat, only eat vegetables, and won't eat bread. We're diverse. We're different. Well, we've all got to, we ought to, we, we've all got to start driving the same thing. We've all got to start eating the same thing. Then we'll have unity. Wrong! We have unity because God gives unity. It's our job to maintain it. Though we're all different, and though we all have different likes and things, man, we could go on and, boy, I wrote down a bunch here. <laughs> There's those who wouldn't go anywhere without a gun. There's some who are here who don't want to have anything to do with a gun. There's those here who will swear by essential oils. And there's those here who think there's nothing, anything about them that is essential. There's some here who can't live without a smartphone. There's some here who don't know what a smartphone is. There's some here even this morning that think it's too cold in this auditorium. And there's some here who think it's too hot. Aren't we diverse? I, I just touched the surface. We are so different. We could go on and on. So what does that all prove? Can I tell you this? Now listen to me. There are as many differences here in the local church as there are in any place in the world, which makes the church susceptible to conflict and friction. So we've got to understand our makeup and who we are. God designed us this way. In the church at Ephesus, there were Greeks, there were Jews, there was probably Grecians, there was barbarians as they described us. I mean, you name it, they all came together diverse. You know what the amazing thing is? That in spite of all those differences, God says you and I are supposed to experience a unity the world knows nothing about. And we are called to maintain that. Why do differences create such a, a hotbed for the potential of conflict and um, <laughs> friction? Well, you finish this description. It's often been applied to two people. It's often been applied or used to describe groups that are fighting amongst themselves. I've personally heard somebody say, uh, describe a church in this way. Well, all they do is fight like cats and, see, you guys are smart. Good, amen. Cats and dogs. We use that. That's a common statement. They're fighting like cats and dogs. Why is that? Well, because cats and dogs are so different, right? You, you've heard me say it before. I joke that, that uh, um, dogs have masters and cats have servants, right, or slaves, Amen. They're just different. Why do they fight? Because they're different. Cats are like cats and dogs. They get after each other. Well, figuratively speaking, don't be offended, but we have a lot of cats and dogs here. We're different in many, many ways. 
a simple conversation. The deeper you get in mutual relationship, the more you'll find probably that, that you don't necessarily agree on, that, that we have differences in different ways. And yet, though we are a bunch of different people, come together as a local church. You know what God says? God says that there is unity here like no other place on earth. Hey, Christian, you catch that? Because in this church, you and I could spend our entire life emphasizing how diverse we are and what we don't agree on. And uh, we have all heard it. Churches have split over the color of carpet. Why is that? Because the church did not understand that they are a diverse place, but in their diversities, God says, this is the place that will have unity like no other. And you can't produce that unity. Well, if I can just get Pastor Henry to like the color carpet I want, then everything will be fine. You can't produce unity. But praise be to God, he produces unity. And then you and I are called upon to do what? Maintain it. Okay. I realize I'm different, and you're different, but praise be to God, there are things that we have in common, as we'll see in the rest of Ephesians chapter 4, that God says, this is what produces unity. And we'll emphasize those things. And will allow our diversities to enhance the ministry and our ability to reach the world. Do you realize that in our diversity, there's some places that you can reach that I can't? There's some places I can go and talk and that maybe you can't. Because we're different. We have diversity. And yet God wants to use that diversity for His glory and our good. Now listen to me. You say, well, Pastor Henry, I... I <laughs> I, you know, I, we are really diverse here. Well, so was the first church. What is about, unique about this truth that God's unity provides, the church alone crosses all boundaries that men establish and put up. Poor and rich. Jew and Gentile, black and white or any other color, men and women, northerner or southerner, Wolverine and Spartan, Chevy driving and Ford driving, union loving and union hating, vegetarian carnivore. You know what? It's not a bad one, actually. Uh, Pepsi Coke, yeah. Hey, can I tell you? I'm glad someone's getting the message. Amen. This is good. That's encouraging to my heart. Uh, (laughs) What does the church do? It unites us and unifies us in a way that nothing else in the world can. Nowhere in the world could you unify something like this. And I'll tell you, my friend, we can't do it. But God gives the unity. We're called to maintain it. In Acts, chapter, in Acts chapter 6, you know what happened? Listen carefully, I'm done. Just a couple things, listen carefully. Acts chapter 6, guess what? New church just started being blessed. They're winning souls. Guess what happens? Conflict and friction. The Grecians come and say, hey, 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 you're neglecting the Grecian widows. They're not getting ministered to. So all of a sudden, guess what? We got conflict and friction in the greatest church ever. 
Born on the day of Pentecost, thousands of souls being added. I mean, it's a great church. It's thriving. What does it have potential for? Because of its diversity, there could be conflict and friction. A little bit later on in Acts chapter 15, there is a council that has to be held. Why? Because Jewish believers and Gentile believers are trying to decide how they're supposed to live and interact together, how they're supposed to get along in the church. So you look at Fostoria Baptist Church and say, oh, man, we've got potential for conflict and we've got potential for friction here. Hey, my friend, that is nothing new. Every church has potential for it. But here's the reality. That, that friction and that conflict does not have to be present in the church if you and I will simply maintain the unity that God has already established. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, you and I can look around. In fact, just take a second. Look around at each other. Make, see, make sure no one else is sleeping. Wake them up if they are. Okay, look around. You know, humanly speaking, what do we see? Well, we see the family of God. We, we see fellow children of God. We see each one. And, and from a human perspective, listen to me, and, and I know some of you, and, and boy, I, I know what you think and what you believe. You know what, humanly speaking, we can see? We can see a lot of possibility for contention, for conflict, for friction. We can see a soil and ground that is ripe and fertile for disunity. I mean, that's literally what we see. Someone has penned a, has penned a poem. You've maybe heard it before and said this, to dwell above, speaking of heaven we love, to dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. So we look around, hey, we see humanly speaking, man, there's, boy, a lot of things can go wrong here, a lot of things. But you know what, spiritually looking around, you know what we see and what we should say is this. Listen to me carefully. Wow. Only God could bring us together and give us unity. It's only his doing. In my goodness, only the Holy Spirit given to us by God and the grace we need daily to maintain and keep us in unity is what God has provided That's his goal, his plan for the church. I'm telling you, this study, this truth, lifts a burden for you and I to say, well, we've just got to to produce unity. No, we don't. God's already produced it. What we have to do is maintain it. Next Sunday morning, we'll get into what causes, where we find that, where God produces that. And the key part of it, how do we maintain it? But can I encourage you with this simple thought as we close this morning? Conflict and friction are potential dangers for any church. But it need not be in this place if each one of us will endeavor to keep the unity in this place. But you know what it takes? Listen. You know the old saying. A chain is only as strong as its weakest. You know what the church takes and needs? Every single member endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. It's a call to work together. And I trust Fostoria Baptist Church will answer the call.
Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, what a delight it has been even to my own heart and soul to study your word, to understand what the church is. And Father, your beautiful, wonderful creation of a diverse place where we come and as your family, as your children, we gather together and we worship you. And yet in that diversity, Father, we we understand the potential for conflict and friction. And yet it is the impetus you have placed on us to maintain the unity you have wonderfully and powerfully established through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'd help every member of Fostoria Baptist Church to, to truly endeavor to maintain unity. Father, I pray for some here today, Lord, that need to join Fostoria Baptist Church or, or find a local church to be a part. Lord, I pray that you would burden their heart to do that. And Lord, help them to see that they are a crucial, vital part of the local church. And you've called them to be that. And Father, I pray for one here today that, that doesn't know for sure that heaven is their home. Lord, I, though we only spoke of it briefly, Father, I pray they'd come to understand their need of Jesus Christ as their Savior. Father, burden their heart this morning. Help them to see. Help them to understand that without Jesus Christ, they face eternity in hell. May today be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray that you'd help each one. Father, if in response to this message, if we will simply just pray for unity, for the maintaining of unity. And Father, I pray we'd also be moved by your Holy Spirit to seek ways to maintain it, to grow it, to encourage it to keep it in this place so that we can be about your business. That the main thing of winning souls and seeing people brought to Christ can maintain and continue to be the main thing. Bless this church, Father, your church. May you use it for many years to come. May the community around us see us as a lighthouse for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I ask you to join me in standing all across the auditorium.